1: What does it feel like in Hong Kong right now? Uh, I would say for the last
0: month, it has been a very challenging month in a number of different dimensions.
1: Dr. Karen Greppen teaches public health at the University of Hong Kong and studies healthcare systems. And right now, her city is in a massive COVID wave something that Hong Kong had managed to avoid for months, even while the U.S. and other parts of the world were battered by Omicron and Delta. Even Hong Kong's previous waves were pretty light. In January, Hong Kong was averaging fewer than 100 cases a day. By the start of this month, that had climbed to 50,000. Hong Kong now has one of the highest COVID death rates in the world. It's been incredibly frightening for many people to
0: finally realize that Everybody is getting a disease that we have been fearing for so long. Mm. Um, And so, you know, the estimates now suggest that maybe upwards of half of the city has already become infected. And that really happened in the last
1: two or three weeks. With so many people infected and needing care, Hong Kong's hospitals are struggling.
0: And so this has uh, translated into, you know, pictures in the newspapers every day of bodies literally piling up. On the roads, bodies uh, piling up inside of the treatment
1: centers in the hospital wards themselves. Greppin says people are terrified about what might come next mass testing, followed by lockdowns, as the government tries to get case levels down to zero. We've seen, for example, panic
0: buying, Uh, people uh, basically buying up everything they can in the grocery stores because. We know that in the mainland, when they do these testing schemes, they've almost always been associated with prolonged lockdowns. Um, and then the second thing that's happening as a result is, is, is really a lot of people li- leaving the city. Um, expats or, or people who uh, you know, have dual passports, there's been a massive exodus from the city in, in the last couple of weeks. And so in some ways, it feels really sad as well, because the city is, is literally uh, dying in some ways.
1: That that feels in so many ways uh, what it was like here in New York City in you know March and April of 2020, and yet here we are two years later.
0: Yeah, um, I think that's right. I mean, a lot of people, I think, would draw parallels between what we're seeing now here to early like early March, April 2020, in, in particular cities like New York. But as you said, uh, we had two full years uh, to prepare for this. Uh, two full years to have uh, put in place things that would have not made the situation as severe as it is, Uh, and yet we did not see those things happening.
1: (sighs) Today on the show, how Hong Kong failed to prepare for a COVID crisis. The government's zero-COVID policy got enviable results, but inadvertently set the stage for disaster. What will it take to change course? I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick with us. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I wonder if you could explain Hong Kong's zero COVID policy to people who aren't familiar with it.
0: There's lots of terms out there. So you could call this an elimination strategy or uh, zero COVID. Or more recently, in fact, the government has adopted the terminology that has become uh, more prevalent in the mainland, which is a dynamic zero COVID. And the basic idea is is that we aren't always necessarily striving to have zero cases at all times, but once there are cases that you move quickly to quickly identify and isolate all known cases so that you can then get uh, cases back down to zero. Um, and so, um, you know, this has uh, been been very successful in the mainland, and and very successful here in Hong Kong for basically two
1: years. Early on, you all had what eight months without a single COVID case. Is that right? That's a, an astonishing figure.
0: Yeah. So from about May of last year through the end of December, we we literally had no COVID. Although the measures were still in place, you know, we had some restrictions, for example, in terms of, you know, how much, how many people can gather in restaurants and, you know, mask wearing is compulsory. We pretty much had what I would call uh, very normal lives. And COVID just was something that people didn't think about all that much because we we had no COVID and there was almost no risk of getting COVID um, in, in the city.
1: That must have been sort of freeing at a time when it felt like the rest of the world was in, you know, varying degrees of lockdown.
0: Yeah. I mean, we, we were getting this question a lot, you know, sort of how, you know, how long can people try to sustain zero COVID and do people really think it could last? And the truth is because we had such a, a you know, normal lives and in relation to what we were seeing happening in the rest of the world, um, a lot of people were very supportive of, of continuing with this policy because it was so, uh, so great and things that we didn't have to worry about. It wasn't until the fall, really, that we started to see, for example, countries put in place measures to, to vaccinate children. So a lot of people were also very supportive of the measures, including myself, um, you know, just so that we would be able to buy the time so that children could get vaccinated before mm. we would open up the border um, and, and allow the virus in as well.
1: At the time, did you think that the policy was successful?
0: I, I would say that you know, in the short run, we were successful, but it was very obvious uh, that we were very vulnerable to any sort of uh, breaches of the, of the defenses because part of this you know, success of Zero COVID meant that we also became very complacent.
1: Yeah, where do you think things started to go wrong from a, from a public health perspective?
0: I actually think the vaccination program really started to go wrong almost immediately. We started vaccinating our seniors uh, in February of last year, um, and then it moved down to other adults in March and April. But it became very obvious that the seniors were not taking up the vaccines in large numbers, even as early as April. Hmm. There was immediately, once the program started to roll out, Every single day in the newspapers, stories of people who, who had passed away or had these adverse events, and then they would report on their vaccination status. Inevitably, they were unrelated, but it didn't stop it from becoming an important news item.
1: The government's vaccination campaign also gave people a choice get the vaccine made by Pfizer and BioNTech, or get the Chinese vaccine, Sinovac. Residents were confused about which one to get and whether to be scared of side effects
0: what the government ended up doing was was sort of suggesting that everyone should speak to their doctor before getting vaccinated. And I think mm-hmm. in many ways, this was actually one of the biggest mistakes that they made. And this was happening at a time where we were starting to move out of our last wave, our fourth wave of the epidemic. And, and so we were getting into a phase in which there was no COVID. You know, people would go and, and speak to their doctors and doctors were saying, well, there's no risk of COVID. So, you know, any potential risk from the vaccine maybe is not worth it.
1: I think one of the things that is hard to get your head around if you are trying to understand what is happening in a different part of the world is the low rate of seniors who are vaccinated. Why not target the elderly like a a lot of other places did?
0: Um, I would say, I mean, they were targeted. So if you actually look at the... um, the guidance that was issued by our scientific committee on vaccination, it was very clear that people living in residential care homes, seniors, people with comorbidities were the priority. But we created this whole idea, and it was really reinforced, I think, a lot by the medical community, that you had to be healthy in order to get vaccinated. And so the older you are, the more comorbidities you have, Um, we actually ended up in a situation in which those were the people who were least likely to get vaccinated.
1: As of March 15th, less than 20% of Hong Kong residents over 80 had gotten three doses of a COVID vaccine. And only about half the same population had even had one dose. Right now, Hong Kong is averaging more than 280 deaths a day. Switching strategies to mitigating COVID even just a little bit earlier might have saved lives. Even a month ago,
0: because of, for example, this focus on zero COVID and this very successful element of the zero COVID strategy, which is to put everybody who has it in in an institution, in a hospital, we needed to, to realize that we could not do that, right? We could not continue to put everyone, even people with mild and asymptomatic COVID symptoms in a facility. We literally clogged our hospital early on in this wave with mild and asymptomatic patients, people who did not need to be there. Mm. And then when the severe cases came, we weren't able to process them. We weren't able to actually get them into beds.
1: And as a result, lots of people died. When we come back, how to turn away from the zero COVID model. Hong Kong is not the only place to embrace a zero-COVID approach. Australia, New Zealand, Vietnam, and Singapore all followed that playbook, but changed paths as it proved unsustainable. Many of the
0: former zero-COVID countries actually did put together plans, roadmaps, for for this exit from zero-COVID into some other model that includes living with the virus. It does require having measures in place so that you you can keep the numbers of cases at a manageable level. It means uh, planning for these surges in your hospital capacity. And we saw Singapore doing doing this. It means putting together real plans on how you would provide information and resources for people who are isolating with COVID at home. One, so they recover safely and then don't need to, to then go into the hospital but two, also that you're providing them with information and advice in order to reduce transmission within the homes. All of these things are, should have been part of, of some sort of plan to enable us to uh, prepare in the case that COVID were to get into Hong Kong in order for us to be able to cope and manage.
1: I saw you speak on this panel where you mentioned that Singapore did sort of psychological preparation of its population as well.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, COVID, especially for those of us who've lived in a zero COVID environment, is still very scary to us, right? We we have not experienced COVID. We don't really know people who've had COVID that we've we've seen, right? Because we've lived in an environment in which no one's had it. We've basically taught ourselves to fear it. Hmm. Although we have very poor vaccination rates amongst our senior, we have very high rates of vaccination. Amongst the general public, for those people, uh, COVID is very likely to be a a you know a bad cold or be asymptomatic, right? But we haven't seen that yet here in Hong Kong. This idea of trying to convince people that COVID is something that you can live with, because in the long term they want us to go back to not living with COVID again. Um, and so, yes, yeah, Singapore spent a lot of time trying to dispel these myths around COVID, um, to try to encourage people uh, to to prepare for this, but at the same time, you know, not panic should they they get exposed or infected with the virus.
1: Singapore has recently been hit with a similar wave of Omicron infections, but the country's hospital systems seem to be weathering it. 92% of the country has had two COVID shots, according to the health ministry, And that includes 94% of people over 80. It seems like a a big issue that you have highlighted is trust. Trust in the government, trust in public health messaging. I'm looking at other places where they have successfully pivoted away from a zero COVID model to something else. New Zealand being another example. And there, trust was high. What would it take to kind of win back trust in the government and the public health authorities in Hong Kong?
0: I think in the short run, it would be very challenging. It's just um, this last two months has, I think, if anything, has further undermined trust in the government response, mainly because one day they'll say one thing, for example, that they were not going to do a lockdown. And then the next day they're saying, well, actually, maybe we are going to do a lockdown. They... We're so sure they were going to implement this compulsory universal testing scheme in March that they actually cancelled online school for children, and now now we're not even sure when it will happen. Um, I do think you know they could be thinking about how, in the longer run, that th- this you know could be built up, uh, but I do think it, it will be very challenging at this point, given given how poor the response
1: uh, to this current wave has been. How much do you think the record high death rate that you all are seeing right now figures into that.
0: I mean, it's hard not to. Um, it's been very unsettling here uh, to, to see this happening. And this, of course, is also hap- is affecting thousands and thousands of families um, who've now lost loved ones. Um, and I think there is a feeling that um, you know, some of these deaths could have been
1: prevented. Omicron cases are also climbing in mainland China. With outbreaks in two thirds of the country's provinces, many cities have ordered lockdowns. I asked Dr. Greppin if anyone there is rethinking or outwardly questioning the government's zero COVID policy.
0: Even in the mainland, I don't think anyone thinks that this is 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 something that's going to last forever. Um, and and so I, I do think even internally, there's they're they're thinking through now, perhaps a bit more seriously. Um, in particular, given what we, they've just observed here in Hong Kong about, you know, what is the right way forward to 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 transition? Um, I don't know if it means it will accelerate the transition away from zero COVID, but I definitely think it will mean that they will have to take a lot more lessons um, in, in on board. So even even yesterday, for example, we saw um, mainland authorities updating the. Uh, rules around um, the need to hospitalize all cases in mainland. I think in preparation for what could end up being significant waves in some of these localities across the mainland now. Uh, And I think that's a direct lesson from, from Hong Kong in that, you know, you really have to, as much as you want to be able to maintain the zero COVID approach, you do need to prioritize in the short run protection of the healthcare resources so that you can you can use them as, as, if, as efficiently as possible to, to save lives.
1: It must be incredibly frustrating to be sitting there watching all of this happen in the city where you live and have the professional expertise to say, we could change the way we do this.
0: It was very frustrating, let's say, a month or two ago when it was, it was very obvious what was about to happen and not seeing any change in policy at all. Um, and unfortunately, I think this has now cost us thousands of lives. And that's, that's, very, that's very sad. I, I hope you know, some of the lessons from, from this wave will be integrated into that. Plus, the fact now that you know, half the city has had COVID, most of them you know, mild and asymptomatic, uh, and we've lost anywhere between, I'd say, five and 10,000 lives. You know, what is the value of returning to zero COVID from a public health perspective? At this point, it's pretty low.
1: Dr. Karen Greppin, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Dr. Karen Greppin is an associate professor at the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong. And that is it for the show today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks. We're edited by Tori Bosch. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer for Slate Podcasts. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and it's also part of Future Tense, a partnership of, of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. I want to recommend that you go back and listen to Wednesday's episode of What Next. Mary Harris talks with journalist Kevin Rothrock about what it's like to run an independent media site covering Russia. We will be back on Sunday with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thank you for listening.